What do you get for someone who has it all? That's a question we sometimes ask when we're supposed to get a birthday present for someone, and it seems like they already have everything they could want. So there are strange little stores online that sell gifts like light-up sunglasses or edible teapots. Because even if someone has everything they could want, they certainly won't have one of those. But the question is, do they want one? Sometimes we say that celebrities, like movie stars, have it all. If somebody has more money than everybody in this room put together, if they have more houses than they can live in, if they have a supermodel spouse, if they have millions of adoring fans, surely that person, if anyone, is getting all they can out of life. If you had to get a birthday present for, say, Benedict Cumberbatch, what would you get him? If you had to get a birthday present for the Queen, what would you get her? Surely if anyone can legitimately be said to have it all, it would be the Queen. Actually, on her own birthday, Her Majesty turns the tables by conferring knighthoods in her yearly birthday honors. She gives out knighthoods on her own birthday. That's my kind of birthday present. When we say that someone has it all, we're saying that they are getting all that they can out of life. We're saying that what they have is what life is all about. We're saying that everyone would and perhaps should live that way if only they could. When you say that person has it all, even if you just say it somewhere inside, you're showing your cards. You're showing what you think life is all about. But do people who have it all really have it all? Does money or success or fame or power really make anybody's life actually better? In England and America and even around the world today, we increasingly define the good life in terms of pleasure, money, success, security, Maybe your vision of the good life is ambitious. Maybe you want to rise to the top of your fields. Maybe you want to improve your own lot and your family's lot. Maybe you want to leave a lasting mark so that people will remember you. Maybe your vision for the good life is more modest. Simple home, simple family, garden, dog, pub watching football on the weekend, not being bothered by anybody, not bothering anybody else. Whatever your vision for the good life is, there are certain questions it has to stand up to. There are questions that, if you can't answer them, I don't know if your vision for the good life is really good. Does life have any meaning? Is there any point to the whole thing? How do you know what the good life is? How can you be sure? Is there any capital T truth? Is there anything that's true, not just for you, but for everyone? How can you actually attain the good life? What if you've really messed up your own life and other people's lives? Is there any way to start over? Finally, will the good life really satisfy you? Will it deliver on its promises? Whatever it is you're striving for, however seemingly small and modest or however great and ambitious, if you get it, will it make you happy? If you get it, will it be enough? 
The passage we're going to consider together is the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18. If you have one of the church Bibles, this is on page 1063, page 1063, the beginning of John's Gospel. This is one of the deepest, most profound passages in all of Scripture. It introduces and distills, it it summarizes and, and gives in a brief form the whole story that John's gospel is going to tell about Jesus. And it shows us that Jesus himself is the answer to all of life's deepest, most important, most eternally significant questions. Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 1 to 18, page 1063. Let's read the passage together. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through Him all things were made. Without Him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light, so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father full of grace and truth. John testified concerning him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because he was before me. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth, came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Here's the point of the sermon in one sentence. Because of who he eternally is, And what he has done in creation and redemption, Jesus, and he alone, is the answer to all of life's most important questions. I'll say that again. Because of who he is eternally and what he has done in creation and redemption, Jesus, 
and he alone is the answer to all of life's most important questions. Because the passage basically has four sections, I'll ask a question of each one, and we'll see how Jesus himself is the answer to each. So first question, does life mean anything? Verses 1 to 5 answer this question. Let's read them again. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This passage begins by echoing the passage we read earlier in the service, the very beginning of Genesis, chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And this passage tells us something more, something even surprising about this God who created all things. This passage names Jesus the Word. Before the universe existed, the Word existed with God. Not only that, John says the Word was God. John, like all of Jesus' first disciples, is a Jew. He believes in one God. He's not saying that the Word is another God, but that this one true God exists as more than one person. Not only is the Father God, but the Son is also God, as is the Holy Spirit, as we learn later in John's Gospel. This is what Christians call the Trinity, and it is a doctrine the Bible teaches. There's no way to make sense of what John is saying here unless we confess that the one true God is Father and Son and Holy Spirit. Verse 3 says that through this word, all things were created. God the Word, God the Son, acted with God the Father in making everything. If it were not for the Word who became incarnate as Jesus Christ, nothing would exist. Not you or I, not this building or this town, not this country, not this planet, not this universe. Everything there is exists because God the Word made it. Verse 4 states this same point from another angle. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Every moment you live, you live because God the Word gives you life. Not only that, but this life in him, John says, is light. Because life is a gift from God the Word, so also is knowledge, understanding, any truth we know, any wisdom we have, anything we discover that's real about this world, about how it works. All knowledge of science is a gift from Him, is discerning what He has made and how. Finally, verse 5. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Even though this world exists because of Christ, this world opposes Christ. We not only bite the hand that feeds us, we reject the one who created us. We oppose the one without whom we would not even exist. And yet, this world's darkness cannot quench the light of Christ. So, our question, does life mean anything? Certainly it often seems meaningless. 
Is there any point to heart disease or cancer? Is there any point to suffering, loneliness, sickness, poverty? Is there any point to just working around the clock again and again, day after day, just to try to get by? Is life just some sort of cruel treadmill that we kill ourselves trying to stay on, and in the end it kills us? You might even say, I didn't ask for life. Nobody asked my permission before giving me life. And that's true. It's actually truer than you know. You didn't ask for life. You certainly didn't give yourself life. Life itself is a gift from another. But if it's a gift, who's it from? Your parents? Well, yes, your parents contributed, and it's right to celebrate mothers and all that they've done for each of us. But your parents didn't create you. No human can create another human. Only God opens the womb. Only God gives life. And God creates each of us individually. And again, John tells us more about the God who created us. This God is not only Father, but also Son. And that Son is God's Word, His speech, His wisdom in person. So why do you exist at all? Because God the Word gave you life. And he sustains it every moment. Why does a gift mean anything? We're thinking about birthday presents a minute ago. Why does a birthday present mean anything? A gift means something because a person gives it to you. Their gift expresses love, generosity, appreciation. Maybe if they give you an edible teapot, their gift expresses a bizarre sense of humor. But the gift only means something because it was given by a person. If you don't know who it's from, you don't know what it means. If a gift just shows up on your doorstep, maybe somebody had a nice thought about you, but you don't know what to make of it. Words mean something because a person says them. When you get a call from your husband or wife, when you get an email from your boss, when you get a text from your sister... These words all mean something because they're said by a person. They call for a response. So, does life mean anything? Yes, because a person has given it meaning. That person is the Word. Jesus, God the Son incarnate. God's Word gives life meaning because He Himself gives life. Beneath and behind the entire universe is not empty nothingness, but an infinitely wise, infinitely loving person. If the universe were simply some kind of ultimate cosmic accident, if that's all there is, if everything just happens to explode into being, how could it have any ultimate meaning? There would be no one there to mean it. If this world is simply a cosmic accident, I think you would be right to conclude that it has no final meaning. No meaning beyond the fragile, changeable meanings we give it ourselves. And there is all the difference in the world between a meaning we create in life and a meaning we discover that's actually there, apart from us. Whether we know it or not, whether we abide by it or not. 
Maybe you want to say that all life means for you is enjoying your job, enjoying your family, enjoying good food and good drink. What happens if you lose any of those things? What happens if and when you lose the ability to enjoy those things? What happens when you die? If meaning is only something we give the world, it's unstable, it's fleeting, it can disappear or dissolve in an instant. But if this life means something because it is created and sustained by one who is himself, the very word of God, the ultimate meaning, then that meaning is something permanent, something sturdy and strong and stable, something that won't disintegrate or disappear. Does life mean anything? Yes, because Jesus himself, God the Word, gives it meaning and is its meaning. There's meaning in life because life itself is in Jesus. Second question for the second part of our passage. How can I know the truth? Verses 6 to 8. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning that light so that through him all might believe. He himself was not the light. He came only as a witness to the light. This John is not the author of John's gospel, but John the Baptist, who is actually Jesus' cousin. And God sent him to preach to the people of Israel to get them ready for the coming of Jesus, to tell them to repent of their sins because God was going to visit them in person. We read later in verse 15 of our passage, John, John the Baptist, testified concerning him. He cried out saying, this is the one I spoke about when I said, he who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. He was before John. He was before all things. John saying, it's just my job to point to him. John's whole purpose in life was to declare how great Jesus is. The focus of John's ministry was not himself, but Jesus. John didn't put himself in the spotlight. Instead, he was a spotlight, training people's attention on Jesus. John's job, these verses say, was to bear witness, to testify, like someone called to the stand in court to give testimony to the truth of what happened. God revealed the truth to John, and John's job was to faithfully declare that truth to others so that all would believe in Jesus. In that sense, John's job is exactly the same as the job of the whole Bible. God inspired prophets in the Old Testament, apostles in the New Testament, to testify to his salvation in Christ. The whole Bible testifies to Christ, just like John the Baptist bore witness to Christ. The message of the whole Bible is that God is our perfect and righteous creator. We owe everything we have to him. And so we owe him everything we have. We owe him worship. We owe him obedience. We owe him heartfelt love and reverence. And yet each of us have turned away from God. We've tried to be our own lords and masters. We've tried to live our way. We've turned our backs on him. And what we deserve is for God to punish us. What we deserve is for God to utterly forsake us. He would be right and good and just to do so. And yet, because he's overwhelmingly merciful, he sent his only son into the world to live for us, to die for us, not to condemn us, but to save us. He sent Jesus Christ to live the perfect life we couldn't and to die our death, the death we deserved for our abandoning God. And he rose Jesus from the dead, vindicating Jesus' testimony 
saying, this is my son, this is the Messiah, this is the one you need to believe, this is the one who is going to be the judge of all things. And now, because Jesus is resurrected, raised to God's right hand, reigning with him in heaven, he calls all people to repent, to turn away from sin and trust in him. People from every nation. This is Jesus is not just attached to some specific people or country or group. He's the Lord of all, and he calls all, everywhere, to repent. If you're here and you haven't turned from sin and trust in Jesus, I would urge you to do so today. To turn away from trying to be your own master, being your own boss, being in charge of your own life, and trusting him to save you, to deliver you, and to transform your life. That's the message of the whole Bible, and that's what this passage calls you to, to trust in him. John's message was so that all might believe. And John wrote his gospel so that all who read it would believe in the name of Jesus. So back to John the Baptist. God wanted Israel to take John at his word, to trust that John was speaking for God when he called Israel to believe in Jesus. And today, God wants us to take him at his word, to trust the apostles and prophets and what they wrote in the Old and New Testaments as they call us to faith in Christ. So, how can you know the truth? Is there any ultimate truth? Truth you can stake your life on? God says, yes, trust my appointed witnesses. Trust those I myself have commissioned, whose mouths I have filled with my own words. Trust them to tell you the most important truth you'll ever hear. For many people today, this call to take God's witnesses at their word is deeply offensive. We think of ourselves as highly rational people. And by that, what that means, we think, is that we, uh, we think, I'm an independent thinker. I won't believe anything on somebody else's testimony. I won't believe anything until I see solid, rational, scientific proof. If that's how you think of yourself, permit me to ask you a question. When's the last time you took any medicine? Maybe your GP prescribed something, the chemist filled the order. Maybe you just went to Boots and, and bought paracetamol. But here's the question. Did you know what was in the pill before you took it? You'll say, of course I did. I, I got the right bottle. I, got, I looked at the, on the label. The chemist herself gave it to me. I, I, sure, of course. But did you know what was in the pill? No, you didn't. You trusted what was in the pill. You trusted your GP. You trusted your chemist. You trusted the drug company that put the pills in the bottle and the label on the bottle. You trusted them all. Did you independently verify the chemical contents of the pill before swallowing it? Did you break it open and conduct a little scientific experiment and put it back together and make sure this has just what I need and nothing more? Of course not. You just took the pill. Now you might say, it's only paracetamol. Come on. Not necessarily. There are pills that if you take one of the wrong kind, you will die. So... You trusted your GP, you trusted the chemist, you trusted the drug company with what could be a matter of life and death. 
The Bible encourages the proper role of reason, of proof, of demonstration, of the truth. But much of what we tell ourselves about being rational people is a lie. It's a shield to keep God's word from getting at us. It's armor to keep anything out that we don't want getting in. You don't actually live by proving everything before you accept it. You certainly don't do that with paracetamol and with medicines much more serious and much more integral to your, your, your preservation of your life. Instead, 99.999% of what you know you take on testimony. Often the testimony of experts, like scientists or doctors or chemists. The Bible itself is testimony, divinely authorized and divinely authored testimony. There are very good reasons for accepting the testimony of Scripture, reasons I'd be happy to talk with you about afterward, but here's my point. How can you know the truth? Trust God's appointed witnesses. Witnesses like John the Baptist, who faithfully proclaimed what God revealed to him about Jesus. Trust the witness God's written word bears to God's incarnate word, Jesus the Messiah. None of us can prove our worldview all the way down. When it comes to matters of ultimate truth, we all trust someone or something. The question is, who are you going to trust? A third question for the third section of our text. Is it possible to start over? Is it possible to start over? People often promise that they'll change. Almost as often, we don't believe them. Maybe you have a coworker who cuts corners. They come in late. They leave early. Whenever they do the books, they skim a little off the top for themselves. If they're caught, they say, oh, oh I'm so sorry. It was an honest, honest mistake. Yeah, I can't, I can't believe that. I'm so sorry. It won't happen again. And you say, yeah, right. Maybe you've been in a family relationship or a romantic relationship with someone who constantly cheated or lied. If someone like that keeps promising to change... Do you believe them? Maybe at first, but that hope quickly dies. Can people really change? Change in a deep way, a permanent way? Change in a way where you go in a completely opposite direction from where you were going before? Often the cynical voice of experience says, no way. And in a sense, the cynic is right. We can't change ourselves, not in the most important ways. We can't transform ourselves into new people. But God can. Verses 9 to 13. The true light that gives light to everyone was coming into the world. He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who received him, to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. 
children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. We can't transform ourselves any more than we can give ourselves birth. But God can cause us to be born again. God can transform us in a way that is as radical as our entering into life in the first place. If you come to faith in Christ, you are given a new start. You're given a new start that changes who you are from bottom to top, from inside to out. When you trust in Christ, you're born not by any human power, not by any miracle of science or biology or technology, not by any technique we can master or control. No, only God can make a person, and only God can make a person a new person. And he promises to do that for everyone who receives Christ. In these verses, we witness a confrontation that creates a division. Jesus is the true light that came into the world. But even though he created the world, the world did not recognize him, didn't embrace him, didn't accept him. Most people did not receive him, did not trust him, did not accept him his claims. Jesus came to his own possession, the earth he made, but his own people, the Jewish people, did not embrace him, by and large. And yet, some did. Some Jews, and some who are not Jews, some from other nations in his own lifetime. Those who received Jesus are those whom God caused to be born again. So, one lesson from this passage Don't presume that because your family is Christian, or your background is Christian, or your country in in some sense calls itself a Christian nation, don't presume that because of any of those things, you are right with Christ. You can have a Christian family and a Christian background, you can live in a so-called Christian nation and not be a Christian. Jesus came to his own people, and even his own people did not receive him. It's not enough to be part of the group. It's not enough to wear the label. The only thing that counts is, do you receive Jesus? Another lesson from this passage, this world is not a reliable guide to truth and salvation. Ultimately, there is no safety in numbers. This passage tells us that most of the people who met Jesus, most of the people who saw him face to face, hear him speak, saw his miracles, knew him, most of those people got Jesus wrong. Most people who met Jesus during his life on earth rejected Jesus. That's staggering. Sometimes we think, oh, well, if I, if I only would have been there and could, could see him and see the things he did and hear the things he said, if only I could see him, I would believe. Jesus says to Thomas, blessed rather are those who have not seen and yet believe. So you can't learn what you should do with Jesus from what most people do with Jesus. Becoming a Christian requires you to take a look at the way most people are going and go in the opposite direction. And often, that's how the Christian life continues. 
we all feel pressure to receive the world instead of receiving Jesus. We feel pressure to love what the world loves, to approve what the world approves, to condemn what the world condemns. Yet we are called to receive Christ and everything he brings, every gift and every command. So as a church, find out where your fellow church members are struggling with pressure to receive the world instead of receiving Jesus. Help each other choose Christ over the world, especially when it costs you something. Celebrate every time someone rightly resists the pull of the world in order to keep receiving Christ. Is it possible to start over? Can I ever begin again? Sometimes it can seem like we've messed up our lives and maybe even others' lives to the point where there's no hope of repair or restoration. Some of you maybe have come to a point, whether in the past or now, where it seems like you've made such a mess of your life that you have no possible hope of starting over, no possible hope of change, no possible hope of wiping the slate clean. Do you ever feel paralyzed by failure? Do you ever feel haunted by guilt or shame for the ways you've wronged others, the ways you've failed others, the ways you've let down family and friends? If so, I've got good news for you. It is possible to start over. And you start over not by something you do, not by something that has to be from your own resources, but by the power of God, by God giving you new life, by God bringing you into a relationship with him. That's not not just being his servant, although it is that, but it's being his child. It's a status you can't lose or forfeit. It's a status you can't mess up. There's absolute love on the other side of that relationship. That's what God brings you into when he gives you new birth. God will never cast away those children whom he himself has begotten. God will never turn away from those whom he has showered with such unimaginable kindness. Fourth, fourth question, fourth part of the passage, kind of verses 14 to 18. Where can I find satisfaction? So often the good things in life are like a feast in a dream. When you sit down to eat, the food disappears. When you put your fork in and try to bring it to your mouth, there's nothing there. So often we think the problem in our lives is that we aren't getting what we want. But then when we do get what we want, it turns out the problem is what we thought we wanted doesn't finally satisfy us. Can any earthly good give you full and final satisfaction? Is there anything that can satisfy not the appetite of your body, but the appetite of your heart? C.S. Lewis has said, We find ourselves in a world of transporting pleasures, ravishing beauties, and tantalizing possibilities, but all constantly being destroyed, all coming to nothing. Nature has all the air of a good thing spoiled. Why does satisfaction always seem to lie just out of reach? Because this world is a good thing spoiled. Where then can we find satisfaction? 
The answer is in verses 14 to 18. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. John testified concerning Him. He cried out, saying, This is the one I spoke about when I said, He who comes after me has surpassed me, because He was before me. Out of His fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Let's start with verse 18. No one has ever seen God. Why not? Bible's answer is that when Adam and Eve sinned in the Garden of Eden, God kicked them out. They used to see God face to face. They used to live in fellowship with him. They used to have an intimate connection with him. But God kicked them out and then stationed an angel with a sword to block their way in. And that's the situation we all live in. Why are we always striving for satisfaction? Because we were made to be satisfied. Why does satisfaction always elude us? Because nothing in this world can finally satisfy us. Where then can we actually find satisfaction? Seeing the face of God. Living in intimate fellowship with God. Gaining face-to-face, ever-increasing knowledge of God. Filling up our minds with the ravishing sight of His beauty and glory. How can we see the face of God now? Verse 14. The Word became flesh and made His dwelling among us. We have seen His glory. The glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. No one has seen God except the one and only Son, who is Himself God. And who do we see when we look at the Son? We see God Himself in all His glory. At the bottom of so many things we strive after, so many things we work hard to obtain, is a desire to see and be satisfied by glory. Why do we want to travel, to go to places that are beautiful and different? We want to see the glory that's there. We want to enjoy it. We want to be satisfied by it. Why do we try to save up money to buy a nice house or get a car or something like that? We want to see that beauty. We want to enjoy it and experience it. Why are we so obsessed with romantic love, with finding a perfect partner? We want to see and be satisfied by that beauty, that glory. But the only glory that will finally satisfy us is God's. The only way to properly enjoy, to make right use of all of these good, created gifts God gives us is if our hearts are satisfied by seeing God. And that is precisely what Christ offers us in his incarnation, his death, his resurrection. Often the problem in modern life is not so much what we don't have, but what we do have. What do we have? Historically speaking, astonishingly high life expectancy. 
Even those of us in material poverty experience physical comforts that would have been unimaginable to the wealthiest of people not that long ago. We have plenty of food, oftentimes too much. We have all the entertainment we could ever ask for, and plenty of entertainment we shouldn't ask for in the first place. And yet the problem is, we have so much, and it amounts to so little. The things we think will make our lives full often leave us feeling emptier and emptier. So where can we find fullness? Only in one who is himself perfect fullness. Verses 16 and 17. Out of his fullness we have all received grace in place of grace already given. For the law was given through Moses, grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. Christ gives fullness because Christ is fullness. He's the source of life. He's the one who sustains the whole universe. He's the source of grace and truth. He's the human embodiment of the glory of God. There is no one more full than him. There is no one who has it all besides him. You weren't meant to be fully and finally satisfied by anything less than God himself. And that is precisely what he offers you by giving you himself in the person of his son. In Jesus, God gives us himself. No one else can save us and nothing less will satisfy us. So there really is someone who has it all. His name is Jesus. And he not only has all, he gives all. Jesus gives us all by giving up all. As one theologian put it, How much did God the Son humble himself? He became a man. He became the least of men. He assumed the form of of a servant. He became the unhappiest of men. He became sin for us. And he did all that to give us everything in him. Jesus died for us so that we could be born again in him. Jesus gave up everything in order to give us Everything in him. What is it you're looking for? What is it that you think the good life is? What more could you ask for than what Jesus gives you if you'll believe in him? Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for your amazing generosity in giving your Son for us, sending your Son to us, handing him over to death for us. We praise you for showing yourself to us in person in Jesus the Messiah. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you that no matter how badly we've messed up our lives, whether before we've trusted in Christ or even as Christians, we thank you that there is always more grace to receive, more grace to be given. Heavenly Father, we pray that you would strengthen our faith in Christ. May we find all we're looking for and all we need in Christ. And may our lives and minds and hearts be so full of him that we overflow to others with this great and good news. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.